You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech at Future Tech Health podcast. I have Louise Short. She's the National Clinical Director for Strategic Benefits Advisors. Uh, acronym is SBA. Uh, their company is owned by Brown & Brown, which is their parent company. So, Louise, uh, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. How about you, Richard? Yeah, I'm glad to talk to you. So, tell me about um, Strategic BA. What's the, the premise of the uh, the company? Yeah, great. So happy to. Strategic Benefit Advisors um, is really a boutique uh, health and benefits um, brokerage and consulting firm. Um, we are located in Southboro, Mass, and um, our book of business is mostly in the Northeast. We are part of Brown & Brown, which is a $2 billion company in the property and casualty and employee benefit space. And um, as a company, the larger Brown & Brown, we provide employee benefit brokerage and consulting services to all markets. So from less than 50 employees up to jumbo employers, including the largest um, Fortune 100 companies in the country. And um, I'm currently working to build out a national practice of clinicians and well-being specialists, and we're focused on population health. So we're assisting employers in improving health outcomes, member experience, process of care, medical costs, productivity. Um, we also have a new health innovation hub, and uh, we're currently accumulating a lot of knowledge on digital health solutions in several categories and uh, figuring out how we can best help our clients um, understand that space and uh, really leverage some of these solutions in their strategies. And we recently became a member of the National Business Group on Health, Health Innovation Forum. So, all right, for uh, employers, what kind of issues are they facing and how are these changing, you know, in the last 10 or so years? What are you noticing? Yep, so employers are facing escalating healthcare costs at a rapid rate. Um, and for every employer, you know, the pain points are kind of similar, um, varies a little bit by employer size and by industry, but what we're finding is high cost claimants are a big concern, the cost of specialty pharmacy drugs, um, the uh, ability to engage employees in anything, uh, including work or 
health or anything in the workplace is a huge challenge for them. Um, the war for talent, very big, especially in certain sectors like healthcare and tech. And then chronic disease, which is really just kind of escalating these healthcare costs and literally, you know, killing the American workforce. So the idea of digital health is really, um, oh, and then I guess I didn't mention access is also a very big issue. So the idea of digital health is to address a lot of the pain points uh, that employers have today. Um, and, and digital health is doing that in a few ways. One is it's addressing access and availability of healthcare. Um, the second is it's addressing high cost and chronic conditions. And then the third is it's, it's addressing um, employee engagement and um, through different sort of modalities, programs, and emphasis. All right. So, so what does that mean? What, what does accessibility mean inside of a healthcare plan? What things are accessible or not accessible and what gets in the way of people getting the health care they need when they're in an employer's plan? Yep, great question. So um, we know today that there is a, an access issue. By 2025, there's going to be a 250,000 nurse shortage and a 90,000 um, physician shortage. And so even today, we have long waits for primary care, behavioral health, and specialists. And so in order to solve for that problem, Digital health has enabled telemedicine. That's one of the sort of biggest manifestations of digital health. And so what we're seeing now are a lot of virtual visits, and that has increased the scalability and access to care. And initially, the virtual visits started off as being more like, I'll call it semi-urgent care, like I've got a cold, I've got a sore throat, I've, you know, I've got a cough, something like that. Um, what we're seeing now is the evolution of virtual care and greater acceptance and utilization of virtual care, both by physicians as well as by patients. So what's happened, or I'll call them consumers because I'm going to really call them patients today, um, but uh, what's happening is we're seeing virtual care move now into behavioral health, not just for consults, but for ongoing therapy. We're seeing virtual physical therapy, and I believe soon it's coming we will see virtual chronic care. And, uh, uh, you know, I was at a conference where uh, it was kind of futuristic, but I really think it's coming around the corner. A woman was watching a soap opera, and her doctor interrupted and said, sorry to interrupt your programming, but I just need to ask you these five questions and check to see if you're taking your medications. That actually is going to start happening. I mean, it's, it's already happening in some sense, and it's going to start happening a lot more. So... Um, that access is, is expanding tremendously. And we know the uptake by physicians of um, telemedicine has increased 340% from 2015 to 2019. So, um, and there's some early studies showing that virtual care is actually getting better outcomes for people with chronic disease. Intermountain Healthcare and some other organizations have done some um, some recent studies. So I think there's starting to be evidence that virtual care is, is going to be more and more the way that consumers are going to relate to care. There are also been studies on consumer behavior, um, particularly Deloitte does a study every year. And what they've found is that millennials and Generation Z expect to be interacting virtually or with tech-enabled um, practices, meaning online scheduling, um, e-prescribing, 
you know, being able to text back and forth or um, interact and ask and not having to come in to get things like lab values and things like that. So what we're seeing is that the younger generations are demanding virtual care or virtually enabled care and that um, they're, they're going to go more for the convenience care. Their ex expectation of the primary care relationship is also very different from older generations. Um, they're not so interested in that long-term relationship as much as getting their care when they need it, how they need it, and kind of being done with it. Well, if you have a chronic condition, that kind of runs counterintuitive to being done with it because if you have a chronic condition, you need regular care, I would think, and a follow-up in order to, you know, to manage the condition better than you normally would. So I don't know if that's a, a schism in the thinking. What have you found? You're absolutely right. So if someone has a chronic condition, they're going to need ongoing care. But again, that ongoing care could be delivered virtually. And so it, it's like not having to leave work, even if you work at home or work in an office, go to the doctor's office, wait there. I mean, it could be a half a day or, you know, a day or more. If you have a chronic condition, many different appointments with specialists, but instead being able to do virtual visits from your home with a variety of different practitioners or from your workplace in a secure area. So there's just a different way of thinking about it. They don't need to necessarily be there hands-on in front of the doctor. Yeah, from what I understand with telemedicine, uh, you have to visit the practitioner in person the first time, and then you have, what, like a year to be able to do telemedicine or virtual conferencing with them? Um, I'm not sure what you're referring to. I mean, as far as I understand, you can always go back to, you know, have another encounter with a physician. If that telemedicine benefit is provided through your health care plan, you can always, you know, have another encounter. So is there is there some specific program you're referring to? No, I, I, I know you can do as much telemedicine follow-up as you want. I just thought the first time you see somebody that you have to see them in person, and after that, you're able to do telemedicine uh, visits. I don't know if right off the bat you could just, all right, I need to see an endocrinologist, and the first time I ever interact with them is through telemedicine and not in person. It kind of depends on how the program is set up. So if it's, for example, a sub-urgent care, like I've got a sore throat or something like that, you can just, you know, do telemedicine. Um, some uh, physicians who are specialists or deal with more chronic patients aren't going to see you the first time in telemedicine. You're right. So it just kind of depends on what condition you have and the provider group that you're interacting with. Okay. But what's interesting today also is that there's chatbots and that um, there are a couple of companies that have uh, are using chatbots to actually refer people into the right type of care. So you can go on, chat with the chatbot, which is programmed, has clinical algorithms behind it, and it will kind of direct you to the right care for your first encounter in the healthcare system, like, you know, suggest you see, you know, go to the ER right away, or gee, it sounds like you need to see an endocrinologist, here's, here's where you can go. So it's interesting sort of access points, if you will, some of which are more automated. All right, so access I see would be, you know, a big benefit would be telemedicine, doing things virtually, texting, that kind of thing. Um, what about the care itself? Is there any way to get better outcomes, you know, using all the technology from digital health versus the way it's done now? Or is that not really a part of digital health's mission? It definitely is. And I think what digital health is enabling and will enable more is more remote monitoring and also more use of 
social connectedness to change behaviors. And I'll give you an example. Um, the Diabetes Prevention Program, which is a program that is scientifically proven to um, prevent people from progressing from pre-diabetes to diabetes, 57% decrease in risk if you can change modifiable risk factors. Basically, people who have uh, are overweight or have high blood pressure and or um, a high cholesterol uh, and high glucose. So um, this program was always delivered brick and mortar. The, the um, YMCA had a national program where they would deliver classes in the diabetes prevention program. Um, about probably about 10 years ago, a group of smart people got together and said, how can we scale this better and deliver it to more people? And they decided to put it on a platform, um, you know, a digital platform, and have virtual coaching in groups. And uh, what they found was that this virtual diabetes prevention program actually was incredibly effective. And they have shown and demonstrated amazing outcomes in terms of weight loss, reversal of metabolic syndrome, and uh, they, they even have a government contract now to deliver this. And there have been a lot of other programs using the Diabetes Prevention Program that have come up that utilize the same principles. So there are three or four companies that are doing this now. But that is an example of getting better outcomes, leveraging science, because we know the Diabetes Prevention Program works, and technology and social connectedness in these virtual coaching groups. So you said there's virtual coaching groups for what? For people that are dealing with diabetes or other chronic conditions? Yes, pre-diabetes and other chronic conditions, hypertension and others. Mm -hmm. how, how does that work with, um, are they led by a physician or are they just peer-to-peer -peer groups? And how are people able to connect, you know, if, without violating HIPAA? Yes. So um, generally, these it kind of depends on which company and which program, but generally these are led by trained coaches who usually have some kind of degree, it might be an exercise physiologist, a nutritionist, whatever, depending on the clinical condition. Um, and they're able to do it by not violating HIPAA because they have everybody sign the appropriate releases, all of their technologies, HIPAA compliant, they have all the certifications that they need, and people agree to be in these virtual coaching groups. Yeah, a lot of times people can opt. They can say, I want to work one-on-one -on -one with a coach, or I want to work in a group. I want to work in a group, but I don't want to show my identity, so I just want to be anonymous in the group, or they can actually be in the group. And, and and have their identity known. It's totally up to the uh, the individual. So how do the um, the health insurers themselves and the employers how do they react to the the new demands of digital health and you know the benefits and the trade offs? What what's the feedback from them? So really good question. So I, I guess I'll start with employers. So employers are kind of confused. There are literally hundreds of these different digital solutions, maybe thousands at this point, and there's new ones coming up every day, and they're in every clinical area, uh, behavioral health, women's health, advocacy and navigation, you know, helping people get around the healthcare system, um, diagnosis of disease, you know, genomic 23andMe and all of those kinds of, of companies, um, virtual care, uh, you name it, it, it's got a solution today. And so, um, some of these digital solutions started out direct-to-consumer, and some still have direct-to-consumer apps, but they've expanded their services through employer-sponsored programs. 
So the challenge for employers is kind of making sense of this landscape, and that's that's part of what we do as consultants. That's what Strategic Benefit Advisors does. Um, it's a very complex market, and so we encourage our um, employers that we work with to really look at these digital health solutions in the context of their broader workforce strategy, not just their health strategy, but their workforce strategy. So how do digital solutions fit in with their overall business objectives and goals, particularly related to health and performance and well-being? And so, you know, employers need to look at their data, medical cost drivers, chronic conditions, employee talent and turnover and satisfaction, and figure out where is it that they want to invest and what makes sense for them, where will they get an ROI in their business, and then also, what resources do they have? Um, you know, if it's a small employer and they're fully insured, they're not going to be able to probably implement a lot of these solutions. If they're self-insured, they've got more options, but still, if they're a smaller employer, it will be hard from an administrative point of view to manage all of these different vendors. They may not have a lot of staff to do that, and it takes a lot of internal resources to manage vendors. So, um, you know, they have to figure out what's right for them. And then when you implement these digital health solutions, which we tend in the industry to call point solutions, they have to figure out how to integrate it with their benefit strategy and other parts of their health management program. For example, if they have a care management program, let's say with a carrier, and they've implemented um, a behavioral health solution, let's just say they implement some kind of a um, cognitive behavioral therapy online, that their carrier needs to know that they can refer people to that solution. So it all has to be integrated and worked together. And that's really, really important because I've seen a lot of employers implement great solutions, but no one ever uses them. No one is engaged and they don't know about it. They don't know about it at the right point in time. So there's a lot of communications and integration efforts that need to go along with these solutions. Um, so I think in general, the majority of the um, employers, and this has been shown, um, there was a survey last year by the National Business Group on Health and the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, majority of employers want these digital health point solutions that have proven to be effective in the marketplace. They want data, which I'll talk about in a minute because there isn't that much data. Um, the payment mechanism is important. So some of these solutions are like a PMPM -PM basis. And most employers now are saying, no, I want to pay for, for this through my medical claims. Um, they want these vendors to get set up so that they can be paid in that way. Uh, and then uh, so they have to have a code, and that code needs to be reimbursed on, on the claim side. Um, or they want to pay for performance. If you engage a certain number of people, if you get certain outcomes, you know, then we'll pay you X. So, um these are some of the issues for employers. They also struggle to integrate some of these solutions from an IT perspective, um, and they want to be sure that they have the right messaging, analytics, whatever it is, multimodal communication channels to actually, uh, that the vendor does to actually kind of target and engage people. So um, what we're finding is a lot of employers would rather go through their health plan because a lot of the health plans have figured out oh, they better catch up and partner with these digital point solutions so that they can add more value to their clients because otherwise their business, the carrier's business, is getting chopped up. It's harder for them to work with these different solutions. It creates more um, work for their staff, more costs. So basically um, now in the last several years, all of the uh, 
major carriers, which are called the Bucas, so the Blues, the United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, they're all partnering with different point solutions. And the, the advantage to employers is they don't need to contract directly with the point solution. They don't need to negotiate. They don't need to integrate. So all of that is done for them, but they can't customize with the point solution. So there's pluses and minuses to both approaches. And some of the carriers have just outright bought point solutions. Now, some of the carriers also, though, are building their own. For example, I mentioned the diabetes prevention program. Well, two or three of the major carriers are building their own digitalized program that's very similar. So they're also doing me-tos, if you will, or trying to, to develop original solutions for, um, you know, for which there aren't competitive point solutions out there. But it's hard to find that niche right now because almost every clinical area has a point solution. Yeah, it's tough because if a carrier wants to do their own stuff and keep it in a walled garden, you know, mm-hmm. how are they supposed to participate when employers are looking to choose carriers and plans if they don't integrate? They have all their exactly. own stuff. I know it captures them once they're in with them, but uh, I think it uh, doesn't seem to serve anyone to do that. What, what is the most advanced, comprehensive, or, you know, uh, most efficacious plan you've seen out there? And what are some of the elements of it? I'm not asking you to name names, but what are some of the, like, the best plans you've seen out there? What do they have? The health plans or the point solutions? Uh, the health plans, because it's more expansive than the, uh, than the point solutions. Um, so I would say that the best top health plans have, in my mind, um, really, uh, they have virtual care options really, really critical. Um, they have robust chronic disease management. I don't want to say disease management, but chronic disease care management, meaning longitudinal care management of members with chronic disease, really focused on those members, incorporating some elements of virtual monitoring, if you will. Um, and then they have options for other types of programs that have to do with um, for example, diabetes monitoring and glucose monitoring or behavioral health. Some of the plans now actually are integrating with non-traditional partners. So um, Cigna just announced a partnership with Amazon Alexa uh, and one of the other uh, big carriers did as well. And right now it's just like information, like Alexa can answer um, health questions. But to be honest, in the future, what's going to happen is that Alexa is going to be you know, knowing the treatment plan. Alexa is going to be reminding people to take their medications or Google, depending on, you know, whatever the um, personal assistant is. There's going to be a lot in that space, and the health plans, I think, are getting out in the head in terms of partnering with those non-traditional uh, groups uh, that aren't necessarily point solutions. What are what are some of the um, the most interesting point solutions you've seen? Just curious as well, to, uh, you know, what some of those would be. Yep. So I'll tell you what some of the best funded areas by venture capital have been. Um, and, and this, this, just to give you some perspective, in the past seven years, there have been almost $30 billion in venture uh, capital funding alone for digital health. And that does not include the Amazon, Google's, um, Apples of the world. So it's a huge area. I think 10% of all VC funding in 2018 was going towards digital health solutions. Um, and it's not leveled off. We thought we would see in 2018 that, that it had kind of uh, the funding had decreased, but actually increased uh, in 2018. Um, and what we found was there were 8.1 billion in funding in 2018 for digital health uh, with 368 deals. So, um, in terms of um, some of the more 
creative things that I think I've seen out in the part marketplace or, or most important. A lot of the solutions are really aimed toward big cost drivers or significant issues in employer populations. And it makes sense because when you think about it, employers are covering um, a huge number of lives, right, in, in the United States. So what's happening is that a lot of solutions are aimed there. Many of these solutions started out direct to consumer and realized very quickly, no, that's not where the market is. The market is the employer market. So if we look at what's driving medical costs, um, one of the big things driving medical costs is um, behavioral health. So 5% of claims, but up to 20 to 40% of spend can be related to behavioral health, particularly those people who have medical issues and behavioral health comorbidities. So what we've seen are, uh, because there are a lot of access issues in behavioral health, we've seen virtual visits that started as consults and now is moving into ongoing therapy. We've seen also uh, online cognitive behavioral therapy, peer support pro programs, um, new work-life support and EAP models, um, programs for families with autism and developmental disabilities, resilience training, um, and resi resiliency has become a big issue. It's, it's about making sure that people have coping skills and getting to them before they get stressed out. So instead of stress management, it's like prevention of stress. Um, so I think behavioral health has been one of the areas that's had sort of the biggest um, uh, innovation uh, in terms of that sort of intellectual capital and money that's gone in there. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of um, musculoskeletal solutions. So musculoskeletal drives a lot of costs for employers back pain, hip pain, knee pain. Many of those people do need some type of intervention, but um, many can be managed, at least initially conservatively with physical therapy and other interventions. And so we're seeing virtual PT, where we have companies that have um, built devices that they send to members. And then the member can have a virtual visit with a physical therapist and the physical therapist can monitor their motion. So I think that's really amazing, um, great solution. Um, I, I mentioned the pre-diabetes, those virtual coaching solutions have, have shown great results um, sort of across the board, different groups, you know, different companies, but all pretty good results. Um, women's health and infertility, that's been a big area and focus for employers in terms of retaining talent. And uh, we've seen some carved out solutions, you know, meaning carved out from the health plan on infertility. Uh, that are virtual, including um, new types of benefits that are administered, um, narrow networks and uh, quality monitoring um, and coaching that includes behavioral health because that's a very stressful time for people, but um, that have shown you know, cost savings, decreased multiples, which is really critical in terms of um, you know, decreasing risk to the uh, individual as well as the babies, right? Um, and then, of course, decreased costs if you don't have multiples because people don't end up in the ICU as much and things like that. So those have been great solutions. I think for the, um, there are also a lot of solutions that apply only to this sort of provider side, right? Like teleradiology, telepathology, virtual monitoring of ICUs, all of those types of solutions, I think, have improved efficiency for physicians. Um, there are solutions that are in the expert medical opinion area that I think are critically important where people can get a, a 
second opinion or an expert opinion on what's going on with either themselves or a family member uh, virtually. And these, these solutions, I think, are among the best that I've seen in the industry in terms of actually really helping people get high-quality care and the best care. Many times the diagnosis is wrong or the treatment path isn't optimized, and so these, these types of solutions and vendors are able to help members tremendously. And then um, one of the central types of solutions that's come about in the last, I want to say, really 10 years is this whole idea of advocacy, navigation, both digital and human. So using analytics to get people where they need to go, holding their hand through episodes of care, um, giving them, you know, sort of personalized attention, very different than traditional health plan customer service, where they can understand what's going on and be helped to get the right care and the best care at the right time. So those are kind of a smorgasbord, but, you know, again, addressing the problem of the healthcare system is too complex and people can't get to where they need to be or they don't understand where they need to be. And that leads to, you know, poor outcomes, poor quality of care. So, and I, I think these advocacy navigation solutions also address health literacy um, and helping to educate people and make them understand more what they're going through and what kinds of questions they should be asking and educate them on the choices that they have going forward. One last question for you. You've covered a lot of areas, but is there anything you haven't covered that is in the future of digital health? Any new exciting things that are coming? Again, I know you touched on a lot of things. But. Yeah, I think that uh, we're sort of at an inflection point. You know, every day new possibilities are opening up, and some are what I would call evolutionary. We haven't really talked about new therapies to cure disease because that's not really so much digital, although some of it is. Um, and then, you know, there's sort of new ways of doing things that, that have been done before, um, like my example, the diabetes prevention program. Some of it's improving uh, with technology on what we already have, um, like ultrasound and imaging. But I think the, the thing that impresses me is that um, the pace and speed to market of innovation um, is unlike any era in the past. So what we're going to see, I think, is a lot more virtual care. I, when I was um, showing my daughter a photo uh, about 10 years ago, my youngest daughter, and there was a record player in the photo, and she had no idea what the record player was. And to me, that's where we're going in medicine. I think 10 years from now or 20 years from now, when we show kids pictures of hospitals, they may not know what that is because the idea of inpatient medicine is going to be reserved basically for people who are enormously ill or need some major surgical procedure, because a lot of the surgical procedures, even hip replacements, knee replacements, are being done outpatient now. It's amazing. So I think that we're, we're really going to see a very big change in how healthcare is delivered and where it is delivered. It started already, and it's sort of, we're just at the brink of a very big, I think, evolution, or maybe even a revolution in how that care is going to get delivered. Uh, I think we sort of live at, I'll call it an age of a mutating edge, but like not the cutting edge, but the mutating edge. Like things are changing, but not in a cancerous way, but they're changing radically. And um, we're pushing the envelope every single day. I think the other thing to think about also is that I've talked a lot about employers, but and I am an, a, a consultant for employers, largely self-insured employers, but uh, we need to, to see quality in the application of these solutions. 
Um, everybody in this country really needs to have a basic level, uh, level of coverage that includes preventive services. And we need for everyone to have health literacy or be able to have access to all of these, this wonderful, these wonderful solutions and technologies that can improve the quality of care and health outcomes. We don't want this to be um, something that is, is only for those who can afford it, only for those who are employed. And many of these solutions now are being utilized by Medicare and Medicaid, and hopefully we'll see more of that as time goes on. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to get in touch and to uh, you know, find out about your services, whether they're an employer or you know, a carrier, insurance company, et cetera? Absolutely. So um, they can um, reach me at louise, L-O-U-I-S-E dot short, S-H-O-R-T, at strategicba, like benefits advisors, um, dot com. Well, very good. So, Louise, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate your having me today, and um, I'm delighted to be here, and I hope that I will hear from some of the people who listen to this podcast, because this is an area that I feel really passionate and excited about. Excellent. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.